What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Cecilia, welcome to the platform. How you doing? Hi, good and you? I'm doing perfect, perfecto. You know, <laughs> we might, we, uh, we could use a little Spanish here if we wanted to. Un poquito. Uh, un poquito, because <laughs> my Spanish is rusty. I was just say, I use it. I probably text more, just via WhatsApp, because there's a people and friends and like just family, adopted family I have now. I mean, if it's rusty, there's only one way to change that. You gotta, you gotta use it unless mm-hmm. you lose it. And so, uh, you can be my teacher. You can be my tutor. Of course. Um, <laughs> but I'm really excited to have you on here. Um, one, just because uh, I don't know you personally, so I want to get to know you better, but also about the work. And like, I want other Nashvillians to know about like just your story, your journey, and how you came to do what you do, and the impact that you currently have on Nashville in the immigrant community, Latinx community, and just the overall community, right? Uh, So tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, my (laughs) name is Cecilia Prado. I use she, her pronouns. I I was born and raised in a small town in Mexico called Monclova, Coahuila. It's in the north, in the middle of the desert. Okay. And it is not known for much, except for the fact that uh, there is a a steel mill uh, plant that produces the most steel in Latin America. And at the peak of its time, it was a big industrial region where a lot of uh, immigrants from different parts of Mexico or even uh, folks coming from the United States were coming, right? So for a better economic opportunity. So I come from a multi-generational indigenous family. My grandfather was Kikapu and my grandma is Huichol. Wow. Uh, the Kikapu come from the Great Lakes region in uh, North America, so around Wisconsin, more or less. And my grandma is from Wichol, which is a tribe in central Mexico. And so they had, they ended up in Monclova because of displacement that, you know, continues to happen to indigenous communities. And there was money to be made in the steel company, right? right. And um, so I grew up through them uh, because steel was such an important resource in Mexico. There was also a very radical and vibrant labor movement uh, of steel workers. So uh, my grandfather was a steel worker. My uncles were steel workers, and some of them uh, still work for the steel company. Uh, and so since I was a little girl, they taught me how to also create some disruption using uh, the power that you have you know, as workers. Right. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's that's a that's a rich history, and it's good that you that you know it, right? <laughs> Many of us, like, don't have the the privilege of like knowing that ancestry, that that history of like other tribes and nations that our like families derive from, um, and that's awesome. Like, that's 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 crazy, dang. And so. Like, did you, did you get to hear, like, some, like, stories from your grandparents about, like, how it was and the just the indigenous and the native things that, that were practiced? Yeah. I mean, I part of it is it is a deep privilege right. to know exactly and to have that connection with the ancestors. Mm-hmm. A lot of those stories are also stories of trauma. So there right. is that complexity that we hold. Um, I know that, for example, for my grandfather, um, many generations uh, before him were displaced. Mm. And uh, his father died, died to his land before mm. it was going to be taken over by uh, you know, an American company right. uh, and turned into a hydroelectric, um, a hydroelectric plant. Wow. Um, so just thinking through that and thinking uh, where I come from and the things that my family has had to do for generations, it's it's a deep privilege to be connected to the ancestors, but it's also, um, it just gives you an idea of the magnitude of the harm that our people have experienced right. for centuries. Right. So what brought you to the United States? How, how did that journey happen? So that was, uh, I had the opportunity in 2009 
to uh, come to study, uh, you know, study college here. Uh -huh. And I took it. At that time, 2009 was a period of a lot of violence in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, the cartels, um, there was this cartel called the Zetas that was uh, growing in its power. And they are uh, notoriously known for being quite uh, violent mm -hmm. and for staging big uh, violent acts to scare people. Mm -hmm. And at that time, um, they took over my town and things were getting uh, very dangerous. So um, I never grew up in my father's family right. and they were better positioned than my mom's uh, mm -hmm. were, right? As a family of steel workers. Um, and on the side of my family, uh, of my dad, I never really had a relationship, but um, you know, he showed up. He said, I am willing to pay for your uh, college education as a way to build some kind of relationship between us. Uh, do you take it? And I said, yes. So I went to uh, the University of Massachusetts, okay. which is where I really, really ended up uh, facing some of the uh, structural issues in the United States, which are similar but a different flavor. So, yeah, let's get straight <laughs> into it. And so, and so, backstory for myself. And so, you never, you really never know what other countries are learning or what you really know um, about other people until you visit their home, their country, I say, right? And so when I had the opportunity to live in Latin America and South America and Central America, I really learned a lot about like this, the Latin culture, Latin people, but also what they thought about me, <laughs> right? Um, and, what, and, and, and some stereotypes that I, had, that I had wrong about them, right? And so I'm curious going to University of Massachusetts, Boston, right? Amherst. Amherst. So rural Massachusetts. <laughs> rural, <laughs> rural Massachusetts, right? Um, and Boston is known to just be a very racist oh. place in general, right? <laughs> um, what was your experience? Like, first off, because I, I have to, I, I want to talk about this a little later on, your language. Was that a barrier for you? Um because I know I've been on the other side of that and so yeah so how was how was how was trying to adjust to learning English did you know a little did you did you just did you have any grasp of it before you came so I uh in theory I knew a little bit of English <laughs> I passed some tests uh you know that we're supposed to measure your English proficiency and I passed those and I was like, okay, I'm ready to go to college in the United States. Uh, I was not. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. So it actually took me about five years to graduate, six years to graduate college. Uh, that's typical for those who do speak. <laughs> a different language. But th but that's, that's but what's crazy is, I think maybe the average like, even if you're a U.S. citizen, graduate like five or six years. So that's not really that bad for a person who came in not knowing, like, the language. So kudos to you. Was I, I think, you know, the language is one part. And right. I, it was definitely, like, the culture shock is another. Right. Uh, everybody in Latin America, we say hi, kissing each other's uh. cheeks. And so I tried to do that the first day. Uh, didn't play out very well, but, you know. <laughs> On a deeper level, I think emotionally, I don't know if that was something I could have been more prepared for. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't done processing some of the violence that I had seen mm -hmm. uh, in, in Mexico during the peak years of the drug war in my region. Mm -hmm. And had, you know, was still not done processing a lot of the harm that uh, I experienced myself. Right. And then I come to this new country where I don't really speak the language and I start seeing how racist academia is mm. here, especially in the United States. Right. It's incredibly racist and the lack of trust that I got from my professors, the lack of empathy. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, was three out of my uh, six years of college. I was three years out of the six. I was in a, a deeply abusive relationship. Mm. 
And that also ended up radicalizing me as a person. I learned a lot about myself during that time. I learned a lot about myself as a person of color in the United States. Mm -hmm. I learned about myself as an indigenous uh, queer woman in the United States, as, um, you know, just about the different systems that play out because I feel like I experienced so much in such a small amount of time. So before we dig in even more, I'm always curious to ask this question, especially for, for, for people who come to the United States from other countries, right? Did you, how did you understand racism before coming to the United States? I think it was deeply exp- like based on my experiences. I was always, you know, we like to think of Latin America as this homogenous mm-hmm. uh, culture of people. Right. And uh, it's actually not true. Latin America is just our geographic region. Saying that you are Latinx uh, doesn't quite begin to address the complexity Right. in the different races that do exist. And in fact, one of the most damaging uh, myths in, you know, among Latin Americans is the fact that everybody seems to believe that we're all mixed, especially with white, that we're all mm-hmm. mixed with white, and therefore right. we are beyond racism. And if you ask somebody from Mexico, they might tell you, well, Mexico is classist, not racist. Mm. It's all about the money. Mm. When that's not true, that right. is a myth that is used to uh, turn a blind eye to the continuous genocide and exploitation of black and indigenous people living in Mexico. And uh, it also creates a lot of, uh, a very insidious form of uh, internalized racism. Because even people of color that, you know, noticeably um, are indigenous or are black, they can use that myth to separate themselves from their race and their people. And uh, it creates a very insidious type of internalized racism. So I didn't fully understand it till recent, till I come to the United States. Right, because because you you know it exists in other places, but it might not be the same type of racism or the same type of colorism or classism, right? You know, it's just white supremacy has affected everything and and depending on where you come from or where you're born or where you grow up or your 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 bubble that you're in you might view it differently so i always just curious um when 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 people especially like yourself do this work and then like in the united states but coming from another country like oh, i wonder like like what was your before you got entrenched in this <laughs> type of racism <laughs> and this and, and this shit that we go here and you not got here in the united states like I wonder how did you conceptualize it then and now? And so that was a that was a great breakdown. I mean, I, I didn't really have a grasp. I definitely yeah. did know how uh, patriarchal Mexico is because mm-hmm. I, you know, I was a queer uh, femme in Mexico. And mm-hmm. that's something that you cannot ignore in a country that is very, you know, sexist, you know, right. with our own flavor of sexism, the machismo right, right. Of, of Mexico. And I was relieved to come to the United States. I picked the area of Massachusetts that I picked because I know it had some of the highest amounts of queer femmes in the country. So right. I was like, I want to go there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there. <laughs> I did my research. Right. No, uh-huh. like you, 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 you have to, though, because like, you want to you feel safe. You want to feel like you can learn and grow and be comfortable in your own skin and your body and with your own identity and who you are. So um, one of the things when I travel, one of the things that uh, black people in such and such, like, <laughs> like, like, let's be realistic. It's not the same experience for, for people who may not identify with the majority. And so, uh, no, like, you have to do that. Like, that's just smart. (laughs) Of course. But, I mean, when we're talking about race, that is something that, honestly, for the first six years or so, like, it was a lot of a constant experience of gaslighting. Mm. Until I realized uh, a lot of different things and started becoming more aligned and um, with my identity and uh you know went through a whole process to liberate myself of some of those so what are some of the the things that you might have struggled with the most that maybe somebody 
that is looking at this is in you know a similar situation or just got here to the United States, um, maybe in school, um, and trying to figure it out like how do that the culture shock. Um, what are some navigation kind of tools or methods that you can give that person um, from your experience in Massachusetts? And yet when you first, when you're doing the first initial six years. I think that really have a grasp of where you come from and who you are mm. and then find your people. And I think that being in deep community with our people, mm-hmm. it felt the first time I experienced that, some of the first times I've experienced that, it was like a whole weight off my shoulders. Like, mm. this is the validation that right. I have been seeking for. Um, you know, you are, you know, your feelings are valid. Your reality right. is, is your reality. Right. Don't question it, it's right. real. And that ultimately, you can, I cannot imagine healing from uh, that uh, outside of a community right. of our people. How did you find your community while you was in Massachusetts during that time? Oof. Uh, well, first, I was incredibly angry about everything that had happened to me. I just knew I had anger. Mm-hmm. So the first emotion that you know got me in that journey was anger. I remember being angry at my teachers for basically not just not showing me uh, respect or uh, just straight up uh, being harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, I r- remember being angry, uh, you know, working at a high school with ESL students who are immigrant, uh, you know, where you know immigrant immigrant youth that were also experiencing similar things. And I remember being angry. Uh, I remember, you know. Um, the uh, domestic violence, like nonprofit organizations, being run of by uh, you know upper class white women, and I remember being angry because mm-hmm. I needed that resource, but I don't feel comfortable in that space, right, yeah. or using that. So I started to think through and started obsessing over um, the resources that I needed that I couldn't access because perhaps they were led by uh, upper class white people, and started to you know, get connected to local organizations or to national organizations. Uh, And one thing led to another, and I ended up uh, coming in contact with a worker center in Western Massachusetts, and that's really where, one of the first times where I felt at home. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that you found that community because, again, coming to a new country, trying to figure out the language, trying to find community, um, I don't think many people really understand how difficult that really is. Um, and when I say many people, just I think just Americans in general, um, unless you've had an experience, a unique experience where you had to live in a country, immerse, learn the language, and then like kind of like, like I remember when I when I did Peace Corps going to Paraguay, and this is with support, right? This is with a whole, this is through the government in a way, right? But just being like not being able to express myself. Just simply because I didn't have, I literally didn't have the words, right? Um, or even just like things get lost in context because yes. of culture differences, right? And just like, damn, like, but it, but it, but it, it, but it made me have a different lens for immigrants or in or refugees that came to the United States because, especially here in the South, where you hear like, ah, oh, we don't want you know immigrants. So you hear these things growing up, and you say, dang, what, you know, what's the, what's the issue? Like, you know, okay, well, are they, are they doing something harmful? But until you're into their shoes, kind of, you know, um, and kind of can, kind of, kind of can understand. Like I was, I say kind of because like I just, it's, it's different me going there to volunteer than like being an immigrant and uplifting your life, right? And uh, it really uh, made me open my eyes. Like, okay, so yeah, this person is not a janitor or working as a secretary because they, because they, they really want to like. You know that that person may be a lawyer in their country, but literally they don't they they don't have the vocabulary to be a lawyer here in the United States or a doctor here in the United States. So, I always um, I always after that moment, I always seen immigrants and refugees in a different light and more more brave than anything, um, and courageous. Um, 
and yeah. which immigrants too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, again, like my own growing and learning, when I hear the word immigrant, I think I think I I was conditioned and trained at that particular time to automatically think Latinx community automatically. In my, for some reason, there's immigrants that like I had a critique on here, uh, and he was like, "Well, you know, we have a hell of a lot of like undocumented Asian Indians here, but that doesn't come to my mind, right? Yeah. That's not that's not what's that's not what's pushed." Or whatever, but uh, so yeah, that's a great question. Which immigrants, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think that people have an issue with black and indigenous people, and uh, it has been, you know, the the main system that was put in place by colonialism quite literally necessitates violence against black and indigenous people to mm -hmm. be able to survive. Right. And uh, a lot of the immigrants that are coming from Latin America, they are indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. that are, um, if we're thinking about Nashville, that's mostly Mayan folks, mm -hmm. right? That are coming because uh, they are a lot of Western multinational corporations that are uh, destroying their land in Guatemala right now, destroying mm. it to put, um, you know, to harvest palm oil right. or hydroelectric companies or mining companies. Right. They're destroying their whole ecosystems, which is causing the natural disasters to be, to have who have worse effects than they would have, right? Because they're removing some of those natural um, uh, barriers uh, that would, you know, uh, reduce the harm. I don't know if I like explain that very well, but basically, folks are coming here because the same colonization and the same exploitation, imperialism, are displacing them from their land. So where are they gonna go? Indigenous people in the Latin, in 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 the Americas have been traveling the whole continent for right. centuries, way right. before colonization. Right. So, and I want I want to I want to get on two things. Um, I want to talk about how you how you got started in building community and some of your work in Massachusetts, and then. I'm, I'm gonna ask the I'm gonna ask the next question after that because I'm always curious about I'm always curious about this but I'm gonna, I'm gonna reveal it once you tell me how did you start once you started working on yourself right how did you start working with other community and building community in Massachusetts Yeah so I tried to I knew things had to change mm -hmm. I was angry I knew things had to change so I started looking for organizations in which I could you know, be part of uh, the creation of something different that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. uh, I started, uh, you know, as an intern with the ACLU of okay. uh, Massachusetts. And this was around, you know, 2016. So Trump had gotten elected and there was all this conversation about immigrants and the ACLU, you know, was uh, had an immigrant protection project. So I went on and uh, it wasn't quite what I was looking for. Mm. I noticed that we would go to the detention centers, we will collect people's intakes, and then the lawyers will sit down and have a discussion after and discuss which cases to take. Right. And most of the time they wouldn't take a case because perhaps they were looking for a case that would create a statement or a case that uh, was very easy to win. Right. And I just felt disheartened because I was meeting all of these, uh, you know, quality human beings that were in detention, and with most of them we just say goodbye, and right. we never did anything beyond that. And to me, I just, it just didn't sit right with me. Uh, then I started uh, volunteering um, at the Pioneer Valley uh, Worker Center, okay. which is a worker center in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, that uh, organizes farm workers and food chain workers. Okay. And as soon as I came in, you know, this was also, you know, I was with other immigrant folks like myself, right. but instead of just taking <clears throat> intakes and doing this transactional uh transactional relationship, it was completely different. You know, we sat down the first time in, in a circle and, uh, you know, you just see, uh, you know, immigrant folks that were very empowered and right. they were learning how to solve their own problems and how right. to be in community with each other. And as soon as you enter the room, the energy, it was like, okay, this is it. 
that's the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have been, at the moment, I was uh, actually uh, doing research in microbiology, which was a little, uh, Microbiology? You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was working at Amherst College doing some research, studying bacteria, and then I started volunteering at the Pine Valley Worker Center. And then I started volunteering a lot more, where right. at that point it was just taking over all of my free time. <laughs> okay. You're a great organizer, right? I would say, you know, I think you're a great organizer from what I've seen you do here in Nashville, and then just some of the research. I know, like, you you went through the process, right? Um, you know in your home country, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, like any other place, mm -hmm. there's a lot of issues, right? <clears throat> and there are solutions to these issues, but to these things, they need powerful people, right, mm -hmm. um, to move on these things. Um, and I'm always curious, and this is, I'm gonna tell you the, the reason why I am so curious. And this is the reason why, and the reason why I'm posing this question. I was teaching ESL uh, once I returned back from Peace Corps uh, because I was so moved and understood this um, language justice, right? This I didn't know I didn't know the term at the time, but that's what I was doing. I understand, like ah, this stops a lot of things from happening, right? I need to get involved, right? I just experienced it myself, just not knowing the language, and I had to grow and learn it. And so let me help other folks that I know that are coming here from the United States, the majority of those folks being um, from Central America, right? And so um, I had a conversation, build a relationships, teaching them English, uh, mostly women. Um, and we started to get closer, we started to ask more just questions about things, right? And then we got into the race part, right? We got into the race part and they said, hey, Jerome, you know, why, why are black people so lazy, right? <laughs> And thank God for my, my, my travel experience because I could have took that a different way, right? And, but we had a relationship. And so I had to break down to them, like, hey, these are, like, this is a situation uh, just historically with black folks that I don't think you have a grasp of. And then systemically, these are some of the things, right? And I tried to do this in English and Spanish. So hopefully it came across, right, <laughs> right, right? And, it, I, and, I, <clears throat> and I, think, I think they took it okay. Um, I think they took it okay. Um, and a question I have for you, and with, once I had that conversation, I had that conversation a few times, right? I always ask, I always ask myself now, but I'm asking you, why don't people like yourself, even if you come to the United States, you get educated, um, and you learn and you build, why not go back to Mexico or your home country and in, in knowing that you have maybe similar or the same issues, especially whether it's, around, whether it's combating white supremacy, racism, discrimination, whatever it may be, why don't you go to that, go back to your home country and build power with your people, just like black Americans have had to do? One, many of us don't have anywhere else to go. So we, like, this is our <laughs> home country, right? This is our home country, so we couldn't, we couldn't escape and leave and run if we wanted to, right? Mm -hmm. um, but why don't um, educated, powerful, strong leaders, um, and I'm just using Mexico because you're here, um, that may be from Mexico, go back and do that work in their country that they may be doing here in the United States? Oof. Well, I ask myself that question a lot. <laughs> not to say that we don't want you here. No. Not, and that's not to say that because, you know, um, the more people, the more people building power is, regardless where you are, uh, is good work. But I, I'm always curious. Um, I'm, I'm always just curious about that. Yeah. I mean, I, th I can think of several ways to look at it. One, we are uh, very close to the problem here. The problem being uh, white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism. I mean, the right. United States is a bully. And, right. uh, you know, the United States hasn't let my country. And technically, like, if, we're gonna, if I'm going to speak as a Latinx woman, our countries, right. the United States hasn't let us do our thing. Right. <laughs> right. And so I think that a lot of people in our countries understand that this country needs to change uh, for us to be able to have an opportunity. Mm. That's the way that we see it. 
Okay. Number two, my people are here because my people are indigenous people uh, that have been displaced, that have gone to uh, from you know we lose our sense of land mm-hmm. and our sense of home. Mm-hmm. It gets distorted and it gets into we all have that shared experience. So in a way, I am organizing with my people, who many of don't really have a, a, a way to go. When we're talking about Mexico, I think a lot about who should be leading. I am an indigenous uh, femme, but I don't practice uh, the traditions of my ancestors in the way that my grandfather did. Mm-hmm. I don't know it. So I need to uh, look at who is doing the work in Mexico, for example, those, the Zapatistas, uh, what can I do to support their work? So here in the United States, I try to connect with indigenous organizations in Mexico and uh, other organizations that I know are getting to the root of the problems of my my country and my people, right? Mm -hmm. And I just try to support. I do whatever they ask me to do. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I think eventually I feel like I could be very happy uh, just being uh, of service to uh, those movements if Mm -hmm. I am useful to them. Uh, I don't want to just impose myself. Uh, Second, uh, I don't think that me being educated or uh, powerful is literally what is going to, you know, save my country. Because one thing that we know is that we don't really, I think it was Ella Baker who said this, like, we don't need powerful leaders. We need, you know, ultimately, we believe in a society and a world where is leaderless and leaderful, right? right? Where uh, you don't need a powerful leader. You don't need that. In fact, I have a lot of opinions about charismatic leaders, right? Right. And how damaging that can be for a movement. Um, If we look at what the Zapatistas are doing, it's very much a process of uh, you lead by obeying. And yeah, man, I think about going over there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, I just, um, and I just, and I think, and I think it hits, I think it hits me differently, and maybe other um, black folks, black Americans. Depends on what you hear, right? I've heard like these things, like all. I'm like, well, okay, well, I get it. We haven't, we haven't got to where we want to be, but. You know, you you could go back and like to your country too that has similar problems and and try to build build with them and not like talk about this like our issues here if you wanted to if that's what you want to do and so I've always been curious, um, and I and also I've been curious but also not sure too because I'm pretty sure people have done that right I'm pretty sure like people have say hey. I've learned some great organizing and power building, community power building tools here. Let me go back to home and try to implement or do what you're doing. Like you said, how can I support people that are on the grounds locally or find their intersexuality? Because like you said, there's there's people from Mexico coming into the United States all the time. And so like, and you know, we're the same continent, so. Yeah, and it's also about strategy, mm-hmm. right? So for example, the town, the, you know, my hometown in the United States was the birth of one of the most radical like communist labor movements. Right. Why? Because steel was a very valuable resource at that point, mm-hmm. right? So, and if you look at the United States during the labor movement of the 1930s, people focused on three main industries to organize, mm-hmm. steel, coal and um auto who had steel was it carnegie who had who had the monopoly on steel was it carnegie or i can't remember rockefeller or rock it was it was one of them yeah one of them had the monopoly on steel but yeah yeah so like if you are workers right so you know even when we think about voting mm-hmm. It, there's so many barriers for our people to actually vote, uh, for right. immigrants to vote, uh, people with criminal backgrounds to vote. Right. There's all this, this is the game that they want us to play. But if we, you know, go and also think through other forms of power and other forms of, um, you know, impact that we can make, we also mm-hmm. 
have our labor, right. right? So looking at where our people are working and how do we use that to create the disruption that we need to shift power away, right? Right. So like, right. you know, maybe uh, my hometown doesn't have that big labor movement anymore because still it's not as relevant as it used to be. Right. But we're also, we need to start looking at where are our people and what power do they have? Right. What industries do they have? Right. Uh, do they work in uh, that, you know, are powerful industries that, you know, disruption makes sense in order to shift power? Um, what are, you know, what is what is the power that we can generate and really use that? So, now you're in Nashville. There's <laughs> a lot of shit that just goes <laughs> on here in Nashville, right? Um, what brought you to Nashville? So what brought me to the South was uh, the Mississippi ice raids of 2019. Okay. So I don't know if you might be familiar with them, but in August of 2019, um, ice kidnapped hundreds mm. of people who were working at three major poultry plants. Mm. And that created a crisis on a level of a natural disaster. Wow. Kids, you know, were dropped in school, and you know, when they leave, when you know, when they're ready to be picked up from school, it turns out that ICE took both of their parents or took all of the guardians. So, you know, just kind of imagine how uh, disrupted that is for a community. Right. At the same time, uh, you know, when the news came out, people were rushing to donate to the like a group of five organizations that were in the in, in, in Mississippi that supposedly supported immigrants or Latinxs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, it turns out that none of them were actually connected or led by the community affected. So there was this organization that took note of that, the Southeast Immigrant Rights Network, and they uh, took on the task to bring organizers that were either indigenous or Latinx that uh, at the very least spoke Spanish, but also people who uh, spoke indigenous languages. Mm -hmm. And they just brought us all together. And basically, um, you know, they were prioritizing people from the South, but they were not enough because the damage was so big. Right. Uh, so I ended up coming <laughs> from Massachusetts. They called me like, you have to be ready and take a plane tomorrow. So I just got all my stuff and I went and wow. uh, you know, it was a group of 50 or 60 organizers. That was one of the other times where it was a very tragic thing, but I also felt home. Uh, and I was deeply impressed by all the work that they were doing here in the South. So right. most of them were Southern organizers. And uh, our task was to create community-led committees that would then become uh, a grassroots organization. Um, and we did. Wow. No, I didn't. I, I've heard about it, but I didn't know like that in depth in it. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Just that, and it. You know, you can you can only just imagine. You know, just you 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 get out of school and you your parents are just not like they just gone. Like they 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 they're being detained and maybe deported, and you just yeah. Yeah, there were families, uh, neighbors were taking care of 10 kids at a time, all of whom, you know, their parents were in detention. Right. Um, and it was a very tragic time. Also, most of them were Mayan. Right. Uh, and they were wrongly identified as Latinx, so they were not getting uh, the interpretation and the language justice that they actually mm -hmm. need. Right. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot. So you just said something that just caught my eye. You said they was misidentified as Latinx instead of Mayan. For a regular Joe Blow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's going to say, oh, well, oh, well, like Mayans, they're, they're in Central America. Wouldn't that make them Latinx? Like, so can you break that down, like the difference so we can be educated? on how can how you can be misidentifying somebody that is Mayan is Latinx and vice versa. So to understand that we gotta, you know, deconstruct the mm -hmm. false myth of the mestizo, mestiza, mestices. Okay. 
So that's something that we call, it's a word for mixed, mixed race. Okay. Which uh, people have come to uh, associate with being Latinx. Or you are Latinx, or you are a, a blend of a race or races in white. Okay. You know, Latinxes, there's always a component of, you know, white supremacy. Oh. But folks who are in the Mayan community, like they are Mayan. Right. And they are their own group of people. There are many nations within Mexico. There are many wow. uh, with, with their own forms of, uh, you know, social uh, arranging and norms and, uh, you know, sometimes their own ways of governing themselves. Right. So they are a very distinct group of people. And it's actually a violation of international law do not recognize them as the uh, tribes that they come from. Wow. So another question, I'm just being educated right now. So background, I've never heard of Latinx until I came back to the United States. Mm -hmm. <laughs> never, I was like, people were like Latinx, because like again, I was in Costa Rica. I was, I'm like they wouldn't using those those terms, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know because I was in those country in that country, so everybody's Paraguayan or Costa Rican or whatever. But I didn't hear Latinx, and so I was kind of like, so I, not trying to be. A, I don't want to offend nobody, but so what 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 do I say, right? We we just we just taking away the O and putting the X, right? Okay, <laughs> fine, cool. So would you rather be identified as Latinx or Mexican. If, pe if people know, right? If I know, oh, she's from Mexico. Okay, oh, she's Mexican. The same saying she's Latinx, or he or she is Guatemalan instead of saying they're Latinx. Do you see people preferring one over the other? I mean, I think Latinx. The term Latinx was, uh, I don't know, invented or you know, put together by queer Chicanexes and okay. queer uh, Latinx folks okay. here in the United States. You know, right? Uh, who are also very much Latinx, right? Even if you know they're first generation or right. whatnot, they're very much uh, our people as well. Right. And um, some people in Mexico or, you know, some, some Latinxes believe that uh, it's, a, uh, it's, 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 it's a type of disrespect to the Spanish language. Mm. For that, I will say, okay, so I should respect the Spanish language, but when has the Spanish ever respected me? Right. They haven't, right? <laughs> so I, I, I have no respect for the Spanish language. I think we should completely change it up, revamp it. I don't care. Right. Uh, so I like, I am Latinx. Uh, okay. I am, I have indigenous descent, but I also, um, I am also Latinx as well, right? Okay. So um, I am Mexican, that's the geographic origin. So right. either of those work. Okay. Hey. <laughs> yeah, whatever floats no, your I'm boat. I'm trying to make sure. <laughs> Change it up. <laughs> make sure I understand it right. Um, okay, so I want to get into some Nashville stuff. Ooh. I want to get into some Nashville stuff. Um, and so Mississippi, Nashville. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about Nashville? What's your thoughts when you first think? Would we? So when you first arrived to Nashville, what was your thoughts? Uh, I loved it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was in Western Massachusetts. There were like no people of color there. I mean, and it was progressive and I found my people. But right. when I, you know, came to Mississippi and I was suddenly, it was deeply tragic, but I was surrounded by all these like uh, Latinx and indigenous organizers in this, from the South. Right. And then I actually come to the South and I see... Uh, you know, I remember seeing one taco stand and the like the sign for the taco truck. It was like taco contento, which is like super, <laughs> a super cheesy like uh, Mexican word. And I was like, oh wow, my people are here and they're comfortable. Like right. you know, in the in the northeast, they will have to hide it a little bit more to fit in and assimilate because. Right. So I just saw them. I saw my people were here and they were comfortable and doing their thing. So I, you know, I loved it. Right. And so um, growing up here, so being a Nashville native, I had no idea there were like 
such a huge community of Latinx. I, I had no idea. We're taking over. Uh, yeah, yeah, taking over. <laughs> but I, I had I had no idea because like I grew up in my community above in North Nashville, which is you know ninety nine point nine percent black, right? Well, it's changing now. But growing up, that was the case. Um, so I didn't know. So I was like, I, it really put me on um, notice when Obama came here, um, and I he did a speech. Uh, at um, Connection Americas, I believe. Mm. I believe. If I got that wrong, <laughs> I'm sorry. But but that like, cause because because Nashville is so diverse, right? And I put quotations. I was, I say segregatedly, diversely segregated, mm-hmm. because we're still in our own little pockets, or whatever, right? And so, um, how how is building in the immigrant Latinx community in Nashville? Ooh. It is not easy, <laughs> you know. I love my people, but right. sometimes they are hard. Uh, and you know, when we are thinking of all of these uh, systems that I just mentioned put in place, that right. like we think that we're all the same, but we're actually not. Yeah, right. like what about Black and Indigenous people from Latin America? That's a whole, that's a whole thing to right. overcome. Um, I think it has been an, an honor to struggle alongside my community. But I would be lying to say that it was completely easy. No, mm-hmm. there's a lot of. Um, what are some of the internal barriers? I guess that you can, that you can kind of think of and name that 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 makes that makes it difficult. Patriarchy, uh, anti an anti-indigenous and anti-black sentiment. So mm. all those three combined, you put them together, and uh, you know sometimes it just says that we have a lot of work to do as a community and um <sighs> that's funny that you say that because if if I had to if I had to pick any other group or community in the United States that I that I may feel like we, we should kind of understand like each other the the best right would be the Latinx community right black and the Latinx so I'll say if, if any two group of people gonna build it should be us building together, right? Because you know, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, right? And so when you when you say like that anti-blackness, like it's I don't. Can you touch on that a little bit? And the only reason I want you to touch on it a little bit because I know it's a it's a it's a big thing, and Ooh. I know it's a big thing living in in these like in South America and in Central America, knowing that like because of the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade, put black folks in those places too, and there's this. It's this tension. It's this thing, right? Like, oh, yeah, we we both are from here, but your skin color is a little different than mine. And so there's that that colorism that goes into place, right? Mm-hmm. So can you can you talk about how that how that plays here in Nashville a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think what I've seen in the United States in in general is that the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to fully embody the type of world that we want to live in and to me that is a world that has transformative justice and that we can actually heal mm-hmm. and see that to other people's traumas as well right and take care of each other i think that one of the obstacles with many immigrant latinx folks indigenous folks is that they have been victimized when they come to this country Mm. and this victimization doesn't allow them sometimes to hold complexity especially if they have never faced and grasped and processed what they just went through like what experiences they went through in the detention center or like what experiences they you know they had when they were exploited by their boss Mm. right and from their victimization and their self-focus like you know, they're, they're right. you know they're just looking at themselves. They might look at you know black people and say, oh well, they are citizens. Mm. They don't have to deal with what we have to deal. Mm. You know, but you don't know this like whole other side of things wow. if you don't get the proper political education and right. that when you're struggling with your people on political with you know with with you know, these big concepts right. and like the history, right. um, you know, it, to get a person to that, you know, vulnerable and safe space where they can, you know, actually absorb the information 
also take some, uh, you know, communication work and uh, being able to listen with intention and listen from the heart right. and, and speak from the heart as well. No, like that's 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 a that's that's crazy because again, like if you like, clearly I'm not you know that next <laughs> that I know of, right? Um, and so I'm always I always want to always want to learn and grow what's what's happening in these communities just so I can have a better understanding of education. So when something is thrown at me, maybe from some somebody from the Latinx community, I can have a better understanding on how to take it and maybe oh okay, well maybe have a little bit of grasp but don't really understand. And so let me try to work that out right and not be just offended. Um, what are some of the things that are happening here in Nashville to 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 build that and get rid of some of that anti-blackness or even um, that political education and and things like that um, and to fix the, the, that 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 victimization or that trauma that they they went through. Uh, I think some of the work, you can look at what the Nashville People's Budget Coalition has been doing uh, and the work that uh, men, some members in our community have done to increase the amount of language justice done to the spaces. But I think this is a work that is on the process of being created. I think we are we have the responsibility to create more of that because we have ha seen some uh, instances and experiences of collaboration but I think that to win a better world for our people we need to work more right. on that right and that goes from an, a, a deep analysis of our practices whether it's as an organization right um, you know as a community and uh, do the very mighty but necessary work that needs to happen. How can we, um, here in Nashville, what can we do um, when it comes to multiracial organi organizing? Um, what can we do to, to, to build that? I know, and that's, that's a, I know that's, a, that's everybody working on themselves, and then just coalition work in general is hard, <clears throat> <laughs> right? And then multiracial coalition work um, can be even harder, but I think it's necessary mm -hmm. um, because we are all affected by what what, what is happening um, rooted in white supremacy. What can we do? Um, what are your What are your thoughts on what can we do to move towards uh, multiracial organizing and and um, I don't even know if this is a word, but um, even multi, you know. I'm, I don't know this word, but I'm gonna say it. like <laughs> multi-sexual organizing when we have different sexual identities coming together, um, getting rid of that homophobia, all of, all of, like what can we what what do you what do you see some of the things that we can do to build build on that here in Nashville? I've been thinking a lot about transformative justice recently, and mm -hmm. thinking a lot about how to. Sometimes at workers' dignity, even right. Like I'm gonna point out, is is the organization I work for. So you know, right. uh, no one's gonna get mad. <laughs> uh, we focus a lot on the oppressor. Okay. That you know, we're always you know a lot of the work that we've done, and this is something that I've, I'm thinking a lot about. That we focus so much on how bad the oppressor is. Is you know a lot of our organizing can be quite agitational, and uh, you know these direct actions, shaming the boss. That sometimes that's sometimes necessary. Right. Um, and it works. Uh, but at the same time, we forget how to nurture our community. So starting to mm. shift that focus to our com to nurture our relationships, learn how to communicate with each other, and then just you know bring in uh, different races and cultures and share ideas and uh, you know find points of alignment right. and see how you know start seeing each other as a community, right? right? that can actually like you know is what makes us powerful we don't right. have the money that uh you know the oppressors have we don't right. have those resources the dominance of culture right. we don't have that or right. what makes us powerful is people right. the numbers and because of that it's so important to work on those relationships and like start from a point of how to speak and listen from the heart and how do we um find solutions to harm that doesn't necessarily uh, end up in creating just more conflict or more harm. Right. 
and just apply that to you know with our own communities and then one thing that has worked at uh, workers dignity is when we have uh, different folks of different races or different like genders speak on their uh, issues as workers as right. you know as whatever and start seeing oh wow there are other kinds of problems that I don't experience right. I am so focused on mine right and it's hard is it because we all have our own self-interest at first but I think that's important to one you have to want to know right you have to be intentional about well I know somebody has it probably has a way worse than I that I have it what can we do to work together to build both of us right um and I like that y'all just had that open dialogue um, to share and have give a, a I like to say brave space instead of safe space a brave space <laughs> to share um, because that can be scary and what I like that you all do at work at Dignity like y'all show out and show <laughs> up right and y'all disrupt <laughs> yes and, um, and one of the things that you one of the things that you um, that you had mentioned earlier as far as like um, the Latinx the immigrant community is what's building this new Nashville like mm. literally, right? <laughs> literally, like essential workers and all these buildings and all this stuff is going up. And I like that, you know, you all understand that. And, and if you all say no, we like we're not we're, we're not gonna we're, we're gonna stop. Like, <laughs> the city stops, right? Many things stop. Um, and I wish that happened more, just amongst like just America and all communities, right? Especially those that are being oppressed, people of color, like. Stop working. Uh, yeah, just start working. <laughs> but that's another facet of things um, of like, well, I kind of need this this paycheck. I kind of, you know, so it's you, you. So you and that's a balance. And you can't you can't you, you can't say, hey, don't go to work because, you know, fight for the collective. Well, my rent due next month, you know, so that's unless you're going to subsidize that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's really hard um, to do. But I like that you all identify that. And at the same time, we live in Tennessee. Like, we have right. the worst labor laws in the whole country. Mm. And that's because we have the most powerful chamber of commerce in the whole country, or one of the most powerful. Wow. So corporate power runs rampant. At the local level, we stop worrying about policies to pass at the local level for uh, in regards of worker rights or labor standards, because there's right. nothing that we could really pass that is not preempted already. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, we cannot raise the minimum wage through right. public policy, a lot of things that we cannot do. So we start looking at like what industries that are people in that have money or mm. have a power to disrupt or the right. potential. Right. And the construction industry is one of those, right? right? There's a lot of construction being done because of the rapidly gentrifying city that is Nashville and the worst labor laws. So it's the most dangerous city to work in construction. And, you know, we are like, okay, there's a lot of angry people here right. that we can channel that anger into something that leads us to the, a better, you know, future for our people, a right. better present. Right. Um, and, you know, recently we just knew that we had to grow right. and we knew that we couldn't pass any public policy. And uh, then we started hearing from a lot of our uh, constituents that they were getting evicted. And this is what led us into the housing work. And you know, a lot of the people getting displaced are the same workers that are building this city. Right. Building, building, building a city that they can't afford to live in. Yeah. Which is crazy. Well, look, like I wish we could keep talking. Like <laughs> I wish we, but we're gonna. I want to bring you back because I, I think it's some, it's some more things I personally want to dig into, that's happening. But I want to leave you with the last word of. Like anything that you want to say to the viewers, to the listeners, um, about just anything that's next for you, what's coming, what should people be on the lookout for, or just something motivational and inspirational for people to take home with them. So something nice is that uh, the uh, I don't know if you've heard, but the Dickerson Road United in Struggle uh, Tenant Union, they just won a big settlement with the developer. And that's huge because it's the first time, you know, even if it's such a small amount of money for what the developer is going to make, just right. the fact that we were able to take some of their money and like bring it back, <laughs> that was amazing. So I feel really, really happy, especially because we're about to write the checks for folks. So they're going to be seeing the money this week. Oh, that's amazing. That's super Congratulations. awesome. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And another thing just in general that I want to share and I've been thinking a lot about is envisioning. Mm. 
sometimes we focus a lot, especially in movement work, or if a person that is, you know, coming into terms with oppression and wants to liberate themselves, um, we are often focused on what we don't want. I am anti-capitalist, I am anti-white supremacy, I am uh, anti-colonialism. But we don't spend enough time thinking of the end goal. So how does it look like? How does a world look like that doesn't have all these oppressive systems? How does it look like? What does it have in it? So start doing that work is so necessary, you know? And if we're looking at at Los Zapatistas, for example, of course they're militarized. Of course they disrupt. Of course they do all these things, but that's not what they lead with. That's not the main message. The main message is another world is possible. And using art to see it, using uh, language to see it, art to see it, any kinds of uh, uh, things that we have at our disposal to really help each other see that better world. So. All I want to say is that if you really care about community work, you really, really care about movement work, like spend some time thinking of how does that look like. Cecilia, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Mucho gracias. <laughs>